You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the singer-songwriter Lily Allen. She first rose to fame in the mid-noughties with her first album, All Right Still, which sold over two and a half million copies. This was followed by her second album, It's Not Me, It's You, which won her a Brit Award, three Ivor Novello Awards, and went to number one in the album chart. Her lyrics are often politicized, sometimes irreverent, and always searingly truthful. No more so than on her most recent and most stunning album, No Shame, which was released last year and explores themes of marriage breakdown, public shaming, parenting, and self-destruction. A few months after the album was released, she extended that storytelling more explicitly in her critically acclaimed, raw, moving, funny, tell-all memoir, My Thoughts Exactly, documenting a life lived in extremes, absent parents, teenage heartbreak, a rapid rise to stardom, substance abuse, self-esteem battles, and grief. The book is ultimately hopeful and tells the story of a woman confronting her demons and confronting who she really is without shame. Um, I guess because I was, you know, writing my album at the time and I was, you know, starting the beginnings of, um, you know, the official of like getting divorced and, and it was just a real sort of period of reflection and um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And so, I don't know, it just sort of felt like, well, actually, while I'm unpicking a bunch of yeah, stuff, maybe yeah. it would be a good time to sit down and write it all, you know? Especially because my kids are so small. Um, actually, you know, Ethel, my oldest, just turned seven yesterday. But at this time, um, she must have been five and Marnie was four. I was four when my parents got divorced. And I don't really know much about what happened in that period of time it's not really ground that either of them want to go back to and cover but I definitely feel like it's quite a big hole in my life in terms of you know what happened and the characters involved so I thought it would be nice for them to have this as well when they're obviously a little bit older <laughs> um, that they can be like oh I didn't mum and dad work out oh, mm. I'll read mum's book that's something I found very moving in the book you say it at one point if anything were to happen to me tomorrow, mm. there have been so many fictitious versions of who I am and what my life is that it would be so easy for my children to find. Mm. It's so important to me that that this is my version of events that they have to keep forever. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I could have written it as a, as in diary form, mm. but it might get lost. Mm. And then there would only be one copy. Mm. <laughs> now it's going to be on the national curriculum. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, and when what do you, you mean? Were... Hasn't it been added already? <laughs> and um, when you were you were talking about the kind of black holes that are that are in your memory and kind of bits of the stories of your childhood that that haven't fully been told to you. When you were writing the book, did you have to go have conversations with people and and start kind of piecing together those things? No, not really. Um, you know, I have like a sort of bank of memories that. 
um, I, I, I sort of refer to and, and they are my truth, you know, mm. and, uh, you know, I feel like any bits of information that have, uh, that I've wanted to explore in the past, I've done that anyway. It wasn't done for the, for the purposes of the book, if you know what I mean? Mm. So no, but also, you know, I have to say at this time, and one of the, one of the other reasons that I wrote this book is because I was incredibly isolated and mm. I had completely cut off from all of my friends and most of my family, you know, and I, and that's probably because of you know, the breakdown of my marriage and, you know, most of my friends sort of taking Sam's side. And so I, I kind of didn't really speak to any of those people and, um, you know, I was going through a really difficult time with my mum at the time. My dad and I have never really had that kind of relationship. We, we do have a relationship, but it's not that. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, I was just really lonely. That And that's one of the, you know, and the book became sort of like my friend, really. Mm. And something that I find when people ask me about my memoir, something that I find quite irritating that you sort of touched on there is when people say it was and I was writing the book like therapy because for me it's like no therapy was like therapy <laughs> and it was not fun at all and then you kind of have some thoughts about what's led you to this point and then you put together it put it together in a book yeah very much so um yeah I mean I do therapy once a week with my my guy and um you know, things obviously would come up in therapy that I'd then be that they would then make it into the book. Mm. Um, but no, I don't. I mean, I think you know, what well, it was sort of cathartic to a certain extent, just that I was sort of getting it out. You know, not out of me, but like out into the world because you know, as I said, or as you said, there are so many sort of like mistruths and other things um, flying about that. Uh, there was a catharsis in the sense of it was like nice to have a place to just be like F you all. Mm. This is what happened. Mm. And how has the it was published in a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Uh September. September, yeah. So how has it been with it being out there? Has there been like a, a kind of a journey of emotions with that? Has it felt like mainly like a relief or has it felt like you've felt very exposed at times um no I've always felt really exposed it's been nice having such a a sort of positive response from lots of people and also not that it was ever the intention but you know I get a lot of messages from people that were like I totally believed the tabloid stuff about you and actually really disliked you and I read your book and I'm really sorry for making Mm. those judgments and it's taught me a lot about you know the information that I'm that I take on board and um, and the opinions that it helps me to form. So that's been really amazing. Um, you know, I've had a message from a police detective that was like, I'm completely changing my whole approach in terms of how I deal with women when stalkers, mm. you know, are involved. And so mm. that's, you know, been amazing as well. Mm. It's all been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, except for like the normal of what you would expect, which is the Daily Mail to make it all about prostitutes and drugs, which yeah. is not really what it was about. No. But yeah. You mentioned your kind of the idea of versions of events. Did you, after writing down the version of many events in your life, did you have people close to your people in your personal life get in touch to say that they understood things more from your side? Yes. And I got a few things from people saying, um, you know, I knew you were going through a really hard time Mm. and I'm sorry that I wasn't there. You know, mm. you sh- I should have been there. But I th- I think 
think social media has got a lot to do with that, you know, because I think before social media happened, you know, people had a lot more time for each other. And, you know, if you knew that your friend was suffering, you would possibly be there for them more rather than sitting on Instagram scrolling, worrying mm. about how many likes you're getting <laughs> engagement. Um, so, yeah, that's that's um, that was nice, you know, people sort of checking in. Um, but then there are, you know, also people that did not like parts of the book um, and felt that there, I'd got things wrong. My dad, for instance, the Glastonbury story of him having mm. a heart attack, uh, he says that it was acute food poisoning. <laughs> Just for anyone who... <laughs> Anyway. I should laugh. It's not funny. <laughs> In the book, I um, alleged that it was uh, a heart attack, a cocaine-induced heart attack, and he's maintained that it was not, and it was um, acute food poisoning from eating roadkill. Um, uh, so there's that. <laughs> And in terms of the response to the book, obviously it's been reviewed very, very well. Every single person I know who's read it has loved it. I showed you my copy this morning that every other page is folded down with things that I wanted to return to, thoughts that I wanted to return to. But I also said to you before we started recording, oh, I'm sure everyone has told you it's the best book ever and, you know, I'm sure everyone's told you that they loved it. And you said they actually haven't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's... Again, again, like it's the thing of, of being, um, you know, a sort of semi-famous person is that mm. um, I think people just assume that you're surrounded by adulation the whole yes, time. Yes. And so they, it's either like a fear of rejection thing, like they're like, oh, you know, she's probably like busy with Kate Moss and Brad Pitt and, you know, or whatever. And it's just like, no, I'm just at home kids call me up and tell me how brilliant my book is <laughs> my phone literally never rings really <laughs> ever I mean apart from like my manager and um uh my personal trainer now mm. but yeah pretty much no one calls me mm. I think everyone a assumes that I'm busy or b assumes that I've might want to like go out on the Raz and no one wants mm. to go out on the Raz with me anymore because I'm a bloody nightmare. <laughs> I've gone out the Raz on, on the Raz to you, Lily, if you really okay. need someone. Cool, it's a date. <laughs> so, on to your first love story, which is a story of first love. And uh, it is a boy, a man who you write about in the memoir called Lester. Can you tell me a bit about him? Lester Lloyd. Um, yes, I can tell you a bit about him. He was my first proper boyfriend. And how old were you? I think 17 or 18. And I met him, he was the cousin of a friend of mine who was quite posh. She's um, called Rebecca McMillan. And, um, yeah, and she had this cousin called Lester. I used to hang out with her quite a lot, and she was sort of like my introduction to, like, the London party scene. Um, and you said that it was very much kind of a group of kids who were these detached bohemian but sort of highly privileged people. Yeah. And they, that must have seemed quite exotic, I imagine, kind of and when you were younger. Yeah, I was definitely, like, impressed by them all, you know. Mm. Um they were sort of like, you know, Rebecca's older brother, Dan, 
Macmillan was going out with Jay Jagger at the time and had just split split up with Kate Moss and I don't know it just seemed like a like I don't know like cool people <laughs> no I'm just thinking back on my 17 year old self I think that would have been because you you say that 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 is you know even though you're a privileged person as you admit mm. it that is a very different world to the world that you grew up in oh yeah I mean it was like you know private jets and yachts and all of that stuff not that I was ever invited on them but that that was the you know what they what their world mm. um and uh you know I was sort of like allowed to kind of tag along to these parties because I was I was I was much littler than them you know they were all sort of like in their early 20s um I didn't really take drugs or anything at that point I think I probably smoked cigarettes and a bit of weed but they all looked really cool. They had really good dress sense, you know, and uh, I was into clothes at that point. And so I just sort of, I was, I, I was kind of like in awe of their sort of like how they kind of like effortlessly just sort of put things together. And, mm. Although it wasn't effortless, it was money. <laughs> <laughs> as you find out, so many things are as you get yes, older. <laughs> um, and... Um, but so yeah, so I was sort of like in this scene, but I, but well, I wasn't in this scene because you know people weren't really talking to me. I was like very much an observer and mm. um and a kid at that. And um, but then I met Lester, and Lester was probably nineteen, I think, so it was closer to me in age. And it was quite a serious, you know, you lived together, yeah. you were together for eighteen months. I think in seventeen-year-old standards, that's pretty big. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I was head over heels in love with him. I mean, I, I'm, I am, a, you know, I touched on it a lot in the book. I, you know, raging codependent. So as soon as somebody gives me an in, I just tend to sort of like latch onto them and become, and become very defined by that person. Um, and I've done that in all of my relationships. I'm only just beginning to be able to sort of stand on my own two feet at the grand old age of thirty-three. But yes, I always think that the answer to my life is whoever it is that I'm going to share it with, mm. that makes sense. Mm. Well, there's a quote from that section. There's a beautiful chapter about when you first meet Lester. And there's a quote about codependence that I think summarises what you're describing so well. Referring to Lester, you say, looking back, this was the first example of what became my raging codependency. Being codependent means you're addicted to being in a relationship. You cannot and will not be alone no matter what. So even if you are with someone who is damaging you or themselves, an alcoholic, say, or a drug addict, or someone who abuses you, you won't leave because however misguided, being with that person, especially such a person, makes you feel needed and loved. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that became like glaringly obvious to me I, I don't know if I noticed it at the time, but I'm, I definitely can see it now, is that I'm now I'm really not a tactile person. I do not like people touching me and hugging and, you know, it, I'm not just not that person. But I, I used to be with my mum. I used to hug my mum and cuddle my mum a lot when I was a kid. And there was definitely at that exact point transference. Like as soon as I started like becoming uh, involved with Leicester, um, I wouldn't let my mum touch me anymore, you know, or hug me, or my sister, or my brother. Do you know what I mean? It was just like I, I'd obviously completely taken that part of myself that wanted, that was felt sort of sustained and nurtured by my mum, mm. and gave that in its entirety to Lester. And um, yeah, and I never really gave it back, you know. And I've just basically been sort of like handing that out to people <laughs> ever mm. since. Mm. Um. But yeah, that became that was 
significant, I think, that um, I tend to put all of my eggs in one basket and um, and everything else around it sort of becomes noise. You mentioned that that's something that you're addressing now in your early 30s. Mm. How hard are you finding it to break to break those habits and kind of reassess how love should be? I mean, I'm not finding it that hard, actually, which I guess is a good thing. It means yeah. that I'm sort of have processing or have done a lot of work on myself mm. over the past few years. Yeah, it's, you know, I've, I actually sort of just split up with my boyfriend a few couple of months ago and that's been, you know, sad, but also, um, you know, I'm not sitting at home thinking, who am I going to marry? <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? I'm yeah. like, for the first time in my life, I'm not panicked about it, even though I probably should be because I'm old now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a funny one. You know, I'm just sort of like focused on being a present mother mm. and um, um, and doing that job as well as I can. And going back to Leicester, that ended kind of fairly dramatically. I remember when I was yeah. reading the book. Did you kind of follow him across the world? <laughs> that, that was after it ended. <laughs> Um, Which is a tried and tested uh, way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, I mean, I guess I didn't read the, see the, read the signs at the time, but he decided to go away with his friends on a you know travelling expedition and um, probably should have taken the hint at that point that the fact that I wasn't being invited on that trip meant that he didn't want me to be in his life anymore, but I didn't. Um, and then I've, you know, I've, we sort of had a phone call few weeks in and I stupidly said don't you love me anymore oh no yeah and he just said no <laughs> it was horrible um and yeah I paid for the privilege to have that as well because it was a satellite phone he was on a boat so it cost me about 10 pounds a minute <laughs> yeah to be dumped um which was devastating you know I was I was absolutely devastated and and then but I knew that the next part of his trip was going to Asia Thailand and around there so I was like I'm going traveling too and um (laughs) basically thought that our paths might cross and he might fall in love with me when he saw me but our paths did not cross and um yeah, that was the end of me and Lester. And how much did you think about him in in kind of subsequent years and throughout? That would have been at the very beginning of your twenties, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think about. I mean, I thought, yeah, I thought about him a lot, and I can't remember who my next victim was. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it probably it wasn't probably until I'd met my next victim that. Um, that I, you know, that's my codependency. Like that's where it stopped, which is transference, right. isn't it? Yeah. So, um, or at least it is for me. Uh, but I remember going to like a couple of parties. I think when you know I sort of started to kind of like not get over it, but you know, was re-establishing my connections with my like childhood friends and stuff. Because that's another thing about when I get into a relationship, my I, my in 
become so involved in that person's life. So all mm. their friends become my friends and actually all my relationships outside of that relationship sort of seem to slip by the wayside. So, mm. yeah, so me and Lester broke up and I started to, you know, reestablish those other relationships. And then <clears throat> Lester got a new girlfriend and she was like two years younger than me and she went to my same school as me and I knew all of those girls and I was triggered <laughs> massively <laughs> yeah and that was also sort of coincided with the beginning of Facebook which made the oh, whole thing no. very unhealthy <laughs> how much do you still engage with that stuff now how much, um, how much does that still prey on kind of uh, quite a lot I mean actually my ex-husband the other day I was um you know, I, I touched on it earlier that I broke up with Dan and um, I sort of had this, basically my old stalker had sent, uh, you know, this, this email and um, uh, to, to an old manager of mine and it suddenly like meant that I had to vacate my flat with the kids because we didn't know whether it meant that he was had been released from hospital yeah. or whatever. And, um, and so I called Sam and uh, said, oh, you know, we're leaving the house because the stalker might be around, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, well, where's Dan? And I said, oh, actually, me and Dan have broken up. And he's like, oh, sorry to hear that, blah, blah, blah. And went to my mum's house. Then the next morning, Sam sends me this email just going, you know, in the interest of, um, you know, transparency, just wanted to let you know that um, I'm seeing someone. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks for telling me the day after. <laughs> just told you I've broken up with Dan <laughs> this locker might be around so yes thanks very much for that and I was like do I know them and he said no zero connection and I just was like I'll be the judge of that Instagram details please which <laughs> <laughs> he refused to give me so now I'm having to um, hire a private detective no I'm joking right? <laughs> no, It seems like Smile, your mm. first big hit, that it was kind of inspired by your heartbreak from Leicester. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, it was. It was It was totally inspired by that. And it was great, actually. I saw, when I, so I played it at Glastonbury the year that it came out and um, I could see him and her and a bunch of other friends all oh watching me in the audience. And I was like, wow. Yeah, it was good. Good times. And your second album, the songs on it won awards. It was um, very thoughtful. It was examining the moment that you were in your life and it was kind of examining fame and the big shift in your life. Yeah, although I don't know if it was really examining fame. I think, I mean, are you talking about the fear? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I've kind of, I think about this a lot at the moment and I don't think it was necessarily a comment on fame. I think it was a it was the f it was a comment on um social media and mm. the beginnings of social media. Mm. Um because you know, the first album had all sort of really come from MySpace. Um and you know, I had a really big following on MySpace compared to most other people. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been quite um across it you know I've always run all my own pages and you know done all of my own interaction with people and I watch it quite closely so I think I feel like at that point in time I saw the beginnings of people presenting a version of themselves that wasn't quite themselves and a little bit of the sort of like brown nosing that people do yeah I think you know 
some of the things that people are now just starting to wake up to themselves because social media is becoming such a big part of all of our lives but it's been a big part of my life for the past 14 years lots of people still get in contact with me now just going like the fear is just so ripe for this mm. period in time mm. and it's I think it's just because basically I was living that Instagram life but on MySpace 14 yeah. years ago yeah <laughs> um so yeah I don't think it's not really about fame it's more about perception mm. and um reality versus non-reality you know that I don't know what's right and what's real anymore couldn't be more accurate description of what's happening now totally but I saw it I saw it and I called it then <laughs> you called it. um but okay, I, but okay. in all seriousness you know there's a good chance that you know I really believe that Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace to run it into the ground because he saw it as a massive threat you know he had a monopoly on um, celebrity culture which is what dictated everything in those days and I think you know maybe that song is why they came down on me and hated me so much because it was on the money and I knew I could see what was happening and where things were going mm. yeah <laughs> and actually not knowing what's right and what's real that is the moment that we're in in so many places particularly in politics in 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 areas of our life that really matter it seems like the virtual world mm. and the real one um, has become confused. I listened to an interview with Zadie Smith recently and she said, I think we're going to look back on this period as a moment where the virtual world for a brief second became more important than the real one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Oh, hardly. Or at least more powerful. Mm. But but it's not... The virtual world is the real world now, you know? After you released your second album, you took a break from music. I remember watching um, a documentary that you were filmed for called uh, Rags, Riches to Rags, mm -hmm. which is about starting a vintage clothing business with your sister Sarah. Mm -hmm. And I remember my heart breaking because it seemed to me when you were talking that documentary that you were pretty resolute that that would be it forever with mm. music. Did you just feel wrung out by it at that point? Yeah, I did. I mean, I just felt like I was being just felt like I had this monster on my shoulder you know that was just like just wanted to like put me back in my box the whole time and I know you know at the time people were saying you know well you shouldn't read your own press and you shouldn't but you're forgetting like you know I wasn't really I, I was on the internet you know so and in order to do your own promotion which is what was required of me at the time and also they didn't really have like proper digital departments and record companies at that time I was seeing all of this stuff I couldn't help but see it you know you can't block it it's mm. there mm. um and then not only that you know tabloids uh, being physically followed by journalists and photographers the whole time everything that I was saying would get spun to meant something mean something else and I think I just like had enough and you know that's another reason that I did this book I think was that I felt all the way through that period like I had something to be ashamed of because that's what they were telling me they were like you're an awful person and everything you say is wrong and you do this and we're gonna find out and we're gonna print it we're gonna let mm. everyone know what mm. you're up to you're an awful person and it my life felt like that and and it still does to a certain extent and so a little bit of that book was like you know what you can't fucking say anything I'm telling you everything so yeah. you cannot use it against me yeah um I'm going to tell you all the bad shit and I'm going to tell you it in my words in a really unashamed way. Mm. You can't, because you, 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 you can dig it out and you can spin it how you want, but now people have got that to refer to and they can say, well, actually, 
that's not how it was. Mm. It was this way instead. But yeah, I mean, talking going into the Lucy in Disguise stuff, I definitely at that time felt, uh, you know, I just met Sam. Um, I fell pregnant, you know, halfway through that doc making of that documentary, and I just felt like it was not an environment that I wanted to bring mm. my child up in. Mm. And when you had your um, hiatus from music, did you were you missing? performing were you missing writing music were you missing the industry or was it was it a welcome break well my life just became about something else you know I was pregnant so it became about baby and then you know George died and um and then it just my my whole life was just focused on having baby you know making a family and having babies and yeah it just I just I don't think I was thinking about the other stuff until the bills started to add up and I was like fuck so well, that that I was the, to swear on this. Of course, okay, of course. Cool. Um, that was one of the moments in the book where I thought, God, I just have no idea what it must be like to have this woman's life, where, where as you said, that you had this mortgage to pay, mm. and it's not as if you can go be a freelance pop star. No, you have to get <laughs> a new album out, and you have to, and you have to tour it. You know, mm. and especially in this day and age with streaming and stuff like. I, it doesn't matter how successful you are with streaming. It does. I don't think it really seems to equate to any money, to be honest. Mm. I think that the, you know how you make money is by branding and by touring. And you know, if you're somebody that tends to sort of speak truth to power and say things as they are, then you know, big international sort of conglomerates don't really want to be your friend. Mm. And um, and so yeah, the money comes from touring. So that's and that means leaving my my bubbers for long periods of time. And that was with Jesus, which is an album that you refer to in the book as you felt kind of slightly disconnected from. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I wrote it, I was suffering with postnatal depression and um, I didn't really. And also, you know, just hormonally, like coming out of three pregnancies back to back. Yeah. Um, I had no idea who I was, mm. what it was that I stood for. I wasn't... Um, you know, I've always been aware of what's going on culturally around me because I live in London and I go out and I hang out with people that take an interest in music and film and art. And um, and for the first time in my life, I was in the countryside and I was with three kids, I mean, two kids. And um, I didn't, I didn't even know what was sort of going on in the scene anymore. So I just sort of did what I thought pop star should do because I thought I was a pop star and it was not not meaningless but um contrived I think mm. to a certain extent mm. your fourth album which was out in June, June no shame mm -hmm. which is a beautiful beautiful album from what I gather in the book it feels like so and from what people are saying about it it feels like it is an album that is very authentically you mm. what was that process like well, it happened possibly on the other side of this wall. Oh, did it? Yeah. Um, I'm amazed there isn't a little blue heritage back right there. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, no, I've, I, I just, I remember talking to Seb, my manager, when things were sort of like in the midst of all kind of like going wrong with Jesus. And I think I was still, um, we were still sort of promoting Jesus at that time. And I think that me and Seb had the conversation. We were like, should we just call it? Let's just move on. Um, and, 
you know, I was really in a state at that time. My marriage was falling apart and, you know, my relationship with my kids was not ideal. And uh, he was sort of like, well, you know, what do you, what, what do you want? Because I felt very much at that time, like the sort of cartoon Lily Allen was at its, you know, peak of cartoonness. And also I was sort of playing up to it in a way, you know, I was dyeing my hair all crazy colours and wearing wacky outfits on stage and twerking on Miley Cyrus. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. just being mad lunatic, basically. Mm. And, um, Which is understandable, particularly when you touch on the fact that after you've had two kids, like most women feel a bit lost with their identity anyway at yeah. that point. <laughs> Jump on the wrecking ball, it'll be fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it all just went a bit bonkers. And... Um, and also, you know, it was the beginnings of Instagram and that sort of like cross-contamination. And I remember sort of like being at the Met Ball and noticing that what everyone was doing was like taking pictures with each other and then copying them in. And it seemed like this was the new way of like in get, getting engagement or I don't know. It all just felt like. And, um, and Seb said, you know, what do you want? And I said, I just want to make good music and people to, you know, like my music and radio to play my music and be able to go on tour and sell tickets so people can hear my music. And he was like, sounds like you want to do music. <laughs> and I was like, yes. And he said, okay, well, let, let's stop accepting the invites to the silly parties yeah. and um, stop going to fashion shows and stop mm. doing things that have nothing to do with music. Mm. Um, and so that's what we did. Yeah. And um, I just sat in the studio and wrote an album for three years until it felt like it was real. Which leads us on to your next love story, which is a love story <laughs> of unrequited love. <laughs> yes. I have chosen Radio One. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Radio One so much. Um, but yeah, I think this record is, a, you know, it's a grown up record and it touches on some, you know, quite intense subject matters that aren't necessarily that audience yeah. you know but you know my whole career up until this point has always existed in that in that stratosphere you know so it's not a rude awakening but a bit like oh okay I'm old <laughs> what's so far I mean you're really not old you're 33 but does it feel in pop star land like suddenly you're in a weird different phase yes a hundred percent Simply because of the age, because of 33. Uh, and being female and 33. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it doesn't match for men. Sadly. Also, I, what's a bit mad about it, it's a bit, it's a bit gaslighty because nobody will come out and say those words. So yeah. you're forced to kind of like come to the conclusion yourself and you're like, but is it really that? And it's like, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, and also it sort of filters into the record company stuff as well. It's like, why aren't you marketing me? Why aren't you giving me lots of money and putting lots of posters up? And it's like, no one's going to say, it's because you're a bit old now. <laughs> so mainly because I guess they'd get sued if they did come out and say that because mm. it's ageist. And, mm. But it would make you feel so much less insane. Yeah, it really would. Mm. I wish someone would just say, yeah. You're in a new phase now. You're old and we can't market you as sexy because you're a mum and you're 33. So welcome to this sector. But welcome no, no to, one has that conversation Welcome with to Radio you. 2, Steve Wright in the afternoon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> welcome to the Michael Ball show, Lily. 
to a quickfire round. What do you think is the most romantic song in the world? Uh, I think the most romantic song is um, Could Well Be In by The Streets. And what do you think the most romantic film ever made is? When Harry Met Sally. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Who was your number one teen crush? Stephen Gately from Boyzone. And who is, to use the parlance of Instagram, couple goals for you? Oof. John Legend and Chrissy Teigen. I mean, it has to be. It has to be. <laughs> They're just the best. I know. How do you, Wouldn't you... it be funny if they actually were hated each other in real life, like... Imagine if we all again. found out that like he was cheating on her. Oh the no, whole I can't time. do that. I can't. I, can't. Deal with it. I actually don't know what I would do with myself if that if that ever happened. I'd kill him. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not going to kill John Legend. <laughs> do you know who else I really like? Oh yeah, as a couple. It's Tom Hanks and Rita. Oh, what's her face? Love, love them. them. Did you listen to his Desert Island Discs? I didn't. Oh, it's so good. good. And he does a he does a great little bit about Rita mm. and how when he met Rita, he knew he'd never be lonely again. <laughs> I know. I know. It's one to listen to is some Kleenex, but okay. it's oh, great. They're, they're couple goals also. On to a story of passionate love. Now, I know that this word, you have a very strong reaction to it. Yeah. Makes me go. <laughs> um, I'm not a really a passionate person. I'm so surprised that you say that. You seem like the most passionate person. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm quite cold. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I did. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think I was. I was going through these things with my sister last night, um, and we were on, sitting on the sofa together after my daughter's birthday party and I was like passionate love and then I was like don't really do that and she just burst out in hysterical (laughs) fits of laughter she was just like yep um ice maiden I don't know it's I I am like an incredibly like warm and caring person like outside of like meaningful relationships (laughs) um and you know and, and compassionate and empathetic and um and I guess like passionate about certain things but I'm not it's not really like that with, in love. I'm a weirdo. No, I think it's fascinating because it's there's a dichotomy there that you're someone who's that from the outside seems to fall in love mm. hard and fast. It's more of I think that's more of a like comfort and stability thing for me. It's like oh, this person likes me. I'm gonna throw everything at it, and they're gonna marry me, and everything's gonna be fine. Mm. And while you would say that you're not a kind of hugely demonstratively passionate person would you say that you're a romantic person yes I am a romantic person because I want um validation and I want the person that I'm with to want to stay with me so I can I can fake it (laughs) quite well not fake but you know what I mean I, I really like I love cooking and I'm a homemaker so I you know I I can make things really nice and cozy and comfortable and and romantic if needs be 
tell you what, one of the most like romantic gifts that I did for Sam when we got married, which he was big into his records, and um, for like I think it was for about four or five months before our wedding, I like bought this old jukebox, like nineteen sort of fifties, sixties jukebox. And had it reconditioned, so it was, you know, in perfect working condition. And then I got all his brothers to, um, I gave them, I set up a, a eBay account, which I gave them all the passwords to. And I said, you just go and find Sam's favourite records oh. from his whole whole life um, and get, like, you know, the first editions or if you can find them. And if not, then um, whatever. So, yeah, we spent, like, sort of five months putting together. I think it was probably 50 records or singles yeah. um five seven inches and yeah and then put it all in in the thing and got the you know the the names typed up and um and gave it to him for for our wedding present so i am capable mm. of doing of romantic gestures that's deeply romantic <laughs> and incredibly thoughtful yeah what's the most romantic thing that someone's done for you I don't know, maybe it's because I don't really have like any particular interest interests that it's quite hard to um to be romantic with me, you know? Um because it's not immediately obvious the things that I really like or that turn me on. So once a lover of mine did send a private jet to collect me from somewhere and bring me somewhere else, very far away. It was a very long journey on my own it's quite romantic I'm not meeting those blokes on Tinder he was also an asshole by the way so I mean it was nice at the time but he turned out to be a prick (laughs) (laughs) Uh, still got to go on a long haul I know and when I got there he bought me a pair of YSL heels I know so probably worth it yeah (laughs) still got the shoes On to your final love story, which is a story of everlasting love. Mm. My children are amazing little human beings and just endless source of joy and entertainment. I'm fascinated by them. Did you always know that you wanted to be a mother? Yeah, I mean, I think that I always you know I know what my how I feel about my mum and it's an unconditional love isn't it so I think I just like thought I would like some of that in my life Mm -hmm. you know I was purely selfish really not when I made the decision to have kids but like as a teenager or whatever just like I always visualize myself with you know kids and a husband and a house in the country and um and happily ever after and I guess a big part of that is love isn't it it's Mm. unconditional love and they're five and seven you said they are five and seven Marnie will be six in January they're brilliant kids they really are it's tough it's hard you know but it is so rewarding I think the most rewarding thing for me about them is them being happy you know them being happy and them thriving because it means that I'm doing my job right and they are, you know, they're happy little things. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's it's not it's not easy by any means. And as someone who, from what I gather in your memoir, 
found adolescence a kind of tricky time. Mm. How do you feel about the prospect of two teenage girls on the horizon? I I actually can't even think about it. Um, I think we will move to a jungle somewhere for those years. No, I don't know. I mean... You know, I think I the things that I struggled with and was contending with when I was a teenager or adolescent are so different to what it is that they're going to be struggling with. And, you know, I think the most I can do is just try and understand it as best as I can and, and hold their hand through and give them what support they need. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I already sort of see signs of, like, bullying or groups and stuff at school. And, you know, Ethel came home the other day and was like, I had to play on my own today, Mummy. And I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> She's like, you know, so-and-so was busy playing with so-and-so and Helen had her broken leg and blah, blah, blah. And Marnie wasn't on the same plane time as me. And I was like, so what did you do? She was just like, I just walked about. Oh, no, I can't bear it. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> just like, I just want to be there at school with them. Anyway, it's life. Mm. It happens. I walk about quite a lot too. <laughs> And it's often said that when people have children, that it gives them pause for thought on their own childhood, that things, wounds are open, memories are kind of revived. Mm. And it gives you a moment to kind of reassess yourself as a child. Have you found that to be true of the process? Yeah, of and also children? I just think like what how the world has changed is just insane. You know, my mom had my sister when she was 17 years old and then, um, you know, she was a single mom with her, came to London managed to get herself onto a course at university and get herself a council flat. And, you know, then she met my dad, had me when she was 23, I think, and then Alfie when she was 24, then went on to become a really successful film producer in her own right, you know, in the late 80s and and early 90s. So I just can't see how that would be possible now. You know, she came from a working-class family. My mum, she didn't have any backing everything that she did she did on her own two feet and you know I think that in those days there was more of a sense of community quite frankly you know and I remember sort of like being left with our neighbours sometimes Um, you know we had these um, Nepalese neighbours that lived next door who used to look after us after school sometimes it just felt like people helped out each other a little bit more Mm. yeah I mean for everything that I, you know, I've sort of like held against my mum when I was a kid, you know, the bits, periods of time that she wasn't there. Yeah, having my own children has made me realise, like, you know, she had it ten times harder than yeah. I do in terms of trying to make her life work. Yeah. Um, but I also think the world was a different place then and people were more available, wanting to sort of like chip in and help. I think, you know, she had a really good solid group of friends who helped her as well. Not that I don't have a solid group of friends, but it seems to me like, you know, money is hard to come by these days and people don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe they had more of it in, in the 80s, I don't know. And if you were to wish kind of one thing for your two daughters, mm. what would what would that be? Honestly, you... just happiness. You know, somebody that struggled with mental health, like I just want them to be, you know, that's, that's why, you know, I felt awful about not being as present as I could be in their, you know, really, really early years because, you know, those are so, so important and they will, they will suffer. That will come back to, to get them at some point. So, 
you know, knowing what I do know now, it's just about being there as much as I can for them and telling them that I love them all the time, but not too much that it's confusing. Sometimes if you tell your kids, you know, I love you, I love you, I love you, but then you're never there, Mm. then they go, but you've Mm. said that you love me all the time, so why don't you want to spend lots of time with me? Mm. And then they start to internalise that. So, yeah, you know, just just being supportive and and trying to make sure that they go into adult life feeling as um you know stable and healthy and and happy as possible that's all i want for them because they'll go on to achieve whatever they want if they feel like that i think lily allen thank you so much for telling me your love stories my pleasure i try to keep an open mind i feel like You say